I would invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that are provided, you're going to find uh, today's text on page 564, 564, and the following page, 565. This morning we will not read through the text, but rather um, read through it as a, in the course of the message. So we'll kind of go through the passage and understand it better. And then kind of at the end, I will make some observations about what we have learned uh, from the passage, which we kind of sometimes do things in that in that format. So let's just pause. We're going to really kind of consider almost the entirety of chapter 7. It'll be similar to what we did with chapter 6, where we kind of take a high-level view, and then we dig into certain parts of it. So we'll come back in um, coming weeks and uh, consider more in more depth John chapter 7. Let's just pause and ask for God's help. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We are thankful for what you have provided the revelation of Yourself in this Word. pray that You would help us to be faithful to it and understand it this morning. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Christ gives an analogy towards the end of John chapter 7. And as we think about the potency of that analogy, of who He Himself is, I think it's important that we think for a moment about that time that you were really thirsty. You know that you know what I'm talking about? That time that you remember it felt like there were cotton balls in your mouth. You needed to get a drink of water. And and you need you needed it for some time. You were way overdue, you were parched, and it was almost painful. How thirsty you were. You had to get it and nothing else would satisfy. Nothing else would would solve the problem except for a cold glass of water, a cold bottle of water to, to parch your thirst. At the end of John chapter 7, Christ says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. All of chapter 7 really leads up to that statement. And so what I want us to do is to kind of take a a view of John chapter 7 and where we understand the context, which will help us understand the constituent parts of John chapter 7 as well. So I would invite you to read along with me beginning in verse 1. Now keep in mind the context that we've just come from in chapter 6 where we said that the theme of it was what kind of a Savior is Jesus? And we are learning along with the crowd, along with the disciples, what kind of a savior he is. And so that journey continues in chapter one, excuse me, chapter seven, verse one. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Right? He was he is unwilling. Another translation says he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, John routinely uses the term the Jews to speak about the leadership of the Jewish people who were in opposition to Jesus. So there was this ruling class, 
that was threatened by the ministry of Jesus. And, and we see in verse 1 that they sought to kill him. And so for that reason... Jesus was not going to go to Judea, which is where everyone else was going at the time. How do we know that? Verse 2 says, Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now what's the significance of that? If you have ever studied the Jewish festivals, you might have some idea of what is taking place here when it simply says in verse 2 that the the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So this is the the Feast of Booths or or Tabernacles. We would call it maybe the Feast of Tents, or we would call it an RV convention. (laughs) Everyone is coming from all over, and they are setting up temporary living quarters in Jerusalem. This took place after the harvest had been gathered. It was a time of joy, a time of celebration, and it was a festival that was very well attended. It was well attended for a couple reasons. First of all, it was an exciting time. People wanted to be in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of of Booths. It was also one of the festivals that was required for every Jewish male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem. So people were flocking into the city. And what would happen was these temporary shelters, these these tents would spring up. And they followed a a rabbinical code, a, a set of rules. The walls must be so thin that the light could come through. The roof had to have enough sky so that you could see the stars overhead. And all of this was set up so that they would be reminded of their wilderness wanderings. Right? When they, when they left Egypt, they were living in tents. They were, they were a nomadic people. And this festival would remind them of, of where they came from. It would come with citrus fruit in their hand which would remind them of the bountiful blessings of God. In their other hand, they would carry a combination of of three tree branches, a palm tree, a willow, and a myrtle, which reminded them of their ancestors' journey in the wilderness. People would gather together, and the priest would take a golden pitcher. He would march down the road to this pool of Siloam, which we have seen previously in the Gospel of John. And he would take the water and he would dip into the water, dip this pitcher into the water and draw out a pitcher full of water. And the people would recite Isaiah 12, with joy you would draw water from the wells of salvation. This was a, 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 a festive time. This was a time of rejoicing and this ritual reminded them of the richness of God's blessing. And then the crowd, led by the priest, would would make their way to the temple. They They would come back, entering in the water gate. There would be a blast of trumpets. And the priest would then circle the altar one time. And he would make his way up the altar. And he would pour water on the altar. This is the ritual that was followed each day during the feast of booths, the festival of tabernacles. This is what is taking place in Jerusalem, and and everyone is flocking to Jerusalem. But Jesus is not, because he knows that there's a plot afoot 
to kill him. And so we see in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when we himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What are they saying? They're saying, look, there's a crowd in Jerusalem. And if you're the real deal, Jesus, this is his brother speaking. If you're the real deal, now's your chance to go up and to show everyone, to prove once and for all that your claims are true. But this was done tongue-in-cheek. This was not well-meaning followers of Jesus seeing an opportunity for the world to learn who he was. That's not what this is at all. This was done kind of in a, in a tongue-in-cheek way. Well, here's your chance, Jesus. If you're who you say you are, I mean, come on. Now, how do we know that this was not sincere? Well, because verse 5 says his brothers did not believe in him. His own brothers did not believe yet who he was. Now, we know the, 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 what happens afterwards, and, and we know that there was a change in heart, at least among some. But at this point, they are not followers of Jesus. Well, Jesus' response is in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not come. Now, there's a couple different words for time in the original language. This one is a word that carries the idea often of opportunity. It's not so much a chronological commentary as, as it is the, the right opportunity has not come. Jesus knows that this is not yet the opportunity. And now what is he talking about? When he talks about his time coming, he is talking about his ultimate work, death, burial, and resurrection to procure salvation. Well, remember in the context that there is a plot afoot to kill Jesus. And if Jesus does what they're suggesting, they will capture him and they will kill him. But Jesus says, it's not, it's not the time for that yet. This is not my moment. Verse 7, he then goes on to comment further on this plot. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. The world does not like for anyone to point out that they are wrong. The world likes to call good evil and evil good. And when someone comes along and points at something that the world extols and says that's evil, that is hated. As long as you're saying affirming what the world wants you to say and affirm, then everything's fine. But when you call out sin, you'll be hated. So verse 8, he says, Go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. When he said these things, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus refuses to do what they're asking him to do. They go up to Galilee, verse 10, his brothers had gone up, and then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, what's, what's happening here in this passage? I mean, Jesus just said, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. But what Jesus is doing is he is sending his disciples, he is sending, sending his family, he is sending kind of his entourage 
on a head. Now, in order to understand the significance of that, why all of that makes sense, think for a moment about the ancient world. Like, if there's someone famous, you know what they look like because you can pull a smartphone out of your pocket and you can Google them and see a picture. This week, we were at a resort in the Dominican Republic um, with my family celebrating my mother and father's 50th wedding anniversary. We're there with, with my parents, my brother, his wife, their kids. And towards the end of our trip, someone told us Barry Manilow is here at the resort. And we told our kids, Barry Manilow is here. And our kids said, who? <laughs> right? So we were, we were watching and, and you know, looking around like, is he, he going to come to the pool? Right? Is he going to come, come sing for us? Uh, we, we never saw him. I'm sorry. The, this story doesn't have this great, really cool ending. But, but, but had he come, we would have known a couple of ways. How would we have known? Well, my brother said, I'm not sure if I walked up to him on the street, I would know who he is. To which I responded by pulling out my phone and Googling and showing my brother a picture of what he looks like. So we would know, but we would know because of modern technology. In the ancient world, Jesus, what does he look like? Well, he looks like every other Jewish man alive right now, right? (laughs) He has dark features. He's about five foot nine, um, (laughs) right? You can't pull out your phone and see what Jesus looks like. So how else would we have known if a famous person had come, right? If, if Barry Manilow had come to the pool, we would have seen, like, everyone clearing the way for him. He would have had, like, three or four butlers around him. He probably would have had a bodyguard or two. He would have had his, his agent. Right? He would have had this whole entourage surrounding him. And even if I didn't know what he looked like, I'd be able to go, ah, there he is. So when Jesus wants to go in, 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 in incognito mode, right? He, he wants to go secretly. He dismisses his entourage because now he can walk right into the city of Jerusalem and is probably not going to be noticed amongst the crowds. And so that might help you to understand why in verse 11, the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? How do you spot Jesus in a crowd like this? You don't, because he doesn't have his entourage around him. And so that's what's happening here when Jesus says, I'm going to go secretly. He goes right into Jerusalem. He's not like wearing a mask here, but, but we have so many, you know, so many modern trappings that kind of surround the way we think about things. We've got to recognize that this is how Jesus came, and they're seeking him. Verse 11, where is he? Where is, where is this man? The, the verb tense that's actually used here in verse 11 is continuous. The Jews are seeking him again and again and again. Where is he? We're trying to find him. Surely he's here somewhere. Now, of course, they're not seeking him because they want to hear his teaching. They're seeking him because they want to kill him. And the crowd seems to be aware of this, verse 12. There was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So there's this murmur, this conversation that is taking place below the radar. 
It's done quietly because we don't want the Jewish leadership to hear this conversation that is taking place. Who is Jesus? Is He legitimate? Is His is teaching true? Is He who He says He is? This picks right up on the theme that we saw in chapter 6. Who is He? Now, it's interesting because we just saw at the end of chapter 6, right, Peter's affirmation that you are the Christ. Where, where can we go, Peter says in verse 68 of, of the previous chapter, right, verse 6, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is kind of a bookmark in all of these, in the surrounding two chapters, this is the question that is on the people's mind. And it's the question that's going to persist into chapter 7. Who is Jesus? And so, this conversation is taking place, and when Jesus appears on the scene in verse 14, teaching in the temple, it's almost as if he appeared out of nowhere. How did that happen? Well, because he came into town quietly even somewhat secretly. And here they are looking, but can you imagine? We're looking for the, the Jewish leadership. They're looking for him. They're looking for him here. Where is he? They're asking people, and all of a sudden, oh, there he is, <laughs> up in front, teaching. Oh, oops. All right? I mean, now we've got a big problem, says the Jewish leadership, right? Because he's now in front of everyone. He's now teaching. People are listening to him. Well, now is not the time to, to drag him off. To his death. And so everything escalates. Verses 14 through 36. Uh, I'm just going to kind of quickly run through this summary and we're going to come back to these um, verses. But Jesus begins to teach and the conversation swirls even greater in, uh, in these verses. Jesus speaks about the law of Moses. He argues that what they are doing is illegitimate, that they're they're using the law unlawfully, which, of course, greatly offends them. He makes the open accusation that they are trying to kill him, at which point they say, you have a a demon. So everything escalates here in in this public exchange in verses 14 through 36. And the, the climax of it, I already cited it earlier, is in verses 37 and 38. So kind of, kind of in, these, in these verses, kind of fast forward in your mind to the end of this account. We're going to come back to some of those intervening verses in future weeks. But I want us to get a flavor of the passage. I want us to see what is happening here. Verse 37 tells us that it was the final day of the feast. Verse 37, on the last day. And then it even calls it that great day of the feast. The reason that that is called the great day is because it is the climax of the celebration. The the priest would then would would return to the temple. Again, just as in the previous days, he's followed by a great crowd which is singing psalms and they're they're waving bundles of palm, willow and myrtle. They come through the water gate Trumpets sound. Now the priests would, would circle the altar seven times, not just once as they did on the previous days. It's, it's like 
It's like the Battle of Jericho, right? Every day, once around the walls. But on the seventh day, seven times, he would go around the altar with this golden pitcher in hand. And the sixth time, another priest would join him who had, who had wine with him. The priest would then again ascend the altar as he had on the previous days with this, this pitcher of water that he collected from the pool of Siloam. The crowd would reach a fever pitch. They're singing, they're shouting, they're rejoicing. This, this was the highlight of an Israelite's life to see the water poured out on the altar in this festive event. We don't know exactly how it happened, but I want you to picture it. The crowd is excited They're energized. They're watching and and, and they're waiting for that moment when they can burst out in song and rejoicing as the water is poured. Just as the priest reaches the top of the altar, a, a momentary hush sweeps across the crowd, anticipating the water being poured out. And in that moment of silence, Jesus breaks the silence as he shouts, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the significance of what Jesus says in verses 37 and 38. Everyone is looking to that pitcher that will pour out water upon the altar. And Jesus points to that and says, that's a picture of me. I am the water that satisfies. All of this is about me. And he draws from that an analogy of who he is. Now that's easy to miss as we think about verses 37 and 38, but it colors the entire chapter. This is the context. This is what is taking place. So as we think about just that one simple statement that Jesus made in verses 37 and 38, what are some things that we can take away as we think about Jesus, the water of life? Well, Jesus points out that there is a need. He says at the beginning of verse 37, if anyone thirsts. Our world is thirsty. It is desperate. It is unsettled. And in fact, the world even recognizes that it is unsettled. Of course, the answers are wrong. That which will allegedly quench the thirst is wrong. Our world thinks that the answer is autonomy, governing self. The world around us assumes that that we are able to fulfill our own need if we are but liberated to do so. And and so the problem that we have, the problem that we have is that, that we need to be freed from these constraints that keep us from meeting our own needs because we are the answer. Oh, but over and over again, that proves futile. 
The thirst persists because that is not the water that will satisfy. I wonder this morning, are you thirsty? Do you have that nagging, oppressive awareness that all is not well with your soul? It's not that your psychological needs are not being met. Because we cannot be satisfied with the riches or the pleasures of this world. What we need is something more. We need the water of life. And so in this statement that Jesus makes is also the offer of living water. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What does Jesus mean when he says, come to me and drink? This is a metaphor for embracing the gospel, being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we're all thirsty because we are all, we are all needy. We need something that we cannot provide ourselves. And the reason for that is because we are separated from God by our sin. Our sin is when we do what we ought not to do and we fail to do what we ought to do. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came and lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He was buried and He rose again the third day. And when He rose again, He signified that He has the power to cure our sin problem. Or in the metaphor of this passage, to give us the water of life. Drinking of Him is coming to Him in salvation. It is acknowledging our own inadequacy, turning from our way to depend on Jesus Christ. This is the offer of Christ Himself who satisfies our need. And so He says, those who come to Me, whoever whoever believes in Me, He says, as the Scripture has said, out of His heart will flow rivers of water. This is regeneration. This is being made new. It's not just that He will give us something that will satisfy us temporarily, but that there will be a wellspring within. Once a person is is converted, once a person is regenerated and made new, there is now this spring from within that satisfies because we have the Spirit of God Himself. And in fact, John tells us that that's what Jesus is referring to. It says here in this passage, in in the, the following verse, verse 39, He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. When one believes in Christ, when one is converted, one is regenerated, he receives the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit comes through repentance and faith in Christ. The charismatic movement has thoroughly confused this. As if the receiving of the Spirit is some separate, independent work. When one is converted, they receive the Spirit of Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit that lives within them and produces this kind of everlasting wellspring that Jesus speaks about. What joy that is. What satisfaction that is. And so, is your soul thirsty? Do you recognize a need? Jesus illustrates for all of the people who are watching, waiting for that first drop of water to come out of that golden pitcher, that He is a water far better. That He is one who satisfies the deepest need of the soul. My friend, this morning you and I have have deep needs. We have profound needs. 
And if this morning you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, today can be the day that you, you turn from death to life, that you turn from thirst to wholeness. It is only through abandoning yourself and coming to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. As we see the doctrine of the Holy Spirit developed further, in the coming pages in the New Testament, we learn that, that the Spirit lives within us. He takes up residence within us. Oh, but we can, we can quench the Spirit. We can suppress the Spirit's work in our life by tolerating sin, by not yielding to the instruction of the Spirit as He takes the Word of God and convicts us. And we fail to respond. We, we push off that conviction. And so I wonder for you who is a believer this morning, do you experience the joy, the, the fulfillment, the, the quenching of thirst that comes when we are living day by day in obedience to Christ and His Spirit? I wonder what areas do you and I have in our lives wherein we do not see the rivers of life flowing out of us? What sin is that? is it that we tolerate? What area of conviction do we refuse to yield? In what way do we not submit ourselves to the teaching of Christ, to following Christ? He has promised us so much. And in this passage, Jesus is reminding us that, that He is a, a certain kind of a Savior, not one who is there to meet the physical needs. Remember, that's what the crowd wanted before, and that's why they, they abandoned him in the last of chapter 6. Oh, certainly he answers our prayer. Certainly he provides our physical needs, but he does so much more than that. And so I wonder this morning, what area of sin must you confess to allow the Holy Spirit to have free reign in your life? What sin do you and I harbor that prevents us from living in the reality of this living water that Jesus provides. This morning, as we think about this passage, we're reminded of who Jesus Christ is, the living water. There is a need for it. There is an offer of He Himself who provides this living water. So let's believe on Him, not only in salvation, as we repent of sin and turn to Christ and are saved, but then each day as believers in Him. Father, we thank You for this passage that reminds us of who You are, that reminds us of Jesus Christ who Himself offered the sacrifice in our behalf. May even this morning we rejoice in that this morning as we think about who Christ is.